Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, the first in our season five, is with Tammy Jones, the co-founder and CEO of Basis Investment Group. Listeners will remember Tammy as one of the six black real estate leaders who I interviewed in our June 15th episode following the killing of George Floyd. On that podcast, Tammy and I only had about 15 minutes to talk, and we promised a later deep dive, a true Leading Voices interview. Well, here it is. Recorded on September 10th, we start the conversation with a discussion of what's happened on the racial equity front, particularly in the real estate world, in the now four months since the George Floyd killing. Is racial equity yet another issue that comes and goes? Or are there legs in a longer-term commitment to make this a part of the permanent conversation? And then we talk about Tammy's pathway into real estate, how she got to co-found Basis Investments, and her plans for the future. So many of our conversations on Leading Voices blow me away, especially our guests' intelligence, grit, and the pathways to the companies they create. There are many of those moments in this conversation with Tammy. As I said at the top, this is the first episode of our Season 5. And so you know the 81st podcast release in Leading Voices. This season will probably get us through our 100th episode, something when we started Leading Voices with ULI back in January 2017, we never could have imagined. So with the 100th episode coming up and calling in a new season, I want to re-articulate to you all why we keep doing this, how we've evolved the conversations, and how I'm thinking about our future guest list. The first reason I keep doing this is pretty simple, straightforward, and obvious to our long-term listeners. I love having these conversations. I learn so much. I get to talk to amazing people, not all of whom I would speak with otherwise. And then I get to share those things I really want to know about real estate and about career path with you all. A pretty virtuous scenario. I keep doing this because I think that for better and sometimes for worse, real estate is highly impactful in our world. And since this is my industry, I want to shine a light on the breadth and impact of our work, how we develop, invest in, and operate in the built environment. And because I'm a headhunter in my workday, I love exploring both what makes great companies great, as well as the pathways that people made for themselves to become successful. These are the themes that you've heard throughout the 80 Conversations. But at the beginning of this year, we all know that the world changed, as did my perspective on career and business, as well as the thoughts for the use of the megaphone of the podcast. First came the pandemic, which made us reorder everything with ripples, actually waves across the real estate business. Then came George Floyd and the deep universal response, including in the real estate community. And now come the fire and smoke disasters here on the West Coast. And remember, I live in Sonoma County, which brings up the broader theme of climate change, not just affecting us here on the West Coast, but in various ways for the real estate business everywhere. Nothing is immune. So leading voices has become more topical. With the pandemic, it felt tone-deaf to have another CEO conversation without addressing these topical matters, so that about half of the guests since March have been on the show for a deep dive into the impact of COVID on their business and the overall sector in which they operate. Same with the equity conversation, which has been embedded in Leading Voices since the beginning. Indeed, the theme and title of Leading Voices is around leadership, and nothing demonstrates leadership more than how a business is addressing fundamental changes like these. So in our interviews, I'll continue bouncing back and forth in these conversations between career stories and the critical matters of our time. We will also strive to continue to present diverse voices. A key driver of leading voices has always been diversity writ large. 
First, we've always had guests presenting the wide range of sectors, geographies, and disciplines of the real estate business. That will continue. Second, we've tried to have guests that range from very senior, often legends in the business, to younger people who've established businesses and careers at a sometimes remarkably young age. Third, we've had guests who represent what we think of more traditionally when we think of diversity, particularly women and people of color. I think we've done a good job at all three of these concepts of diversity through the series and promise to continue on each of these goals. I invite you all to go into the Leading Voices library of 81 episodes and check out a few of the past interviews where the conversation aligns most with your interests. You can access the whole series on the podcast website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or in your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or others. Of the 81 episodes in the series, probably about half of these conversations in retrospect still blow me away. So check them out and let me know what you think. So we will continue the quest on leading voices, and I invite you to be part of it. Please rate us on Apple Podcast. Please share your favorite episode with a friend and please subscribe. You can also send us comments via the contact section on the podcast website. Again, that's leadingvoicespodcast.com. Or to me at my work, email at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. One last thing, thank you to my colleagues at TerraSearch Partners, without whom we could not produce this podcast, as well as my family who puts up with the obsession that it takes to keep this going. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Tammy, and thanks for being part of Leading Voices. So, Tammy, let's uh, start the, the conversation. Tammy Jones, you are, the I think, our first guest who's been on twice. So thank you for the revisit. We did the podcast about three months ago, right after George Floyd died. And we did a joint a podcast where I interviewed six black leaders. And we promised at the end of that conversation to come back, dive in and see what happened out of that crisis moment that has persisted and what that means. And then also to talk to you as a normal guest on Leading Voices about your career and your pathway and your journey and what you do in real estate. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to continue the conversation. You've become one of my favorite people to talk to. So um, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. So maybe just for orientation to our guests, tell us what you do, what basis investment is. So let's we're going to come back to that and talk about current events, but let's just orient to who you are and why we're talking. Okay, great. So again, I'm Tammy Jones, and I am the CEO and founder of Basis Investment Group. And Basis is a commercial real estate investment platform. We are SEC registered, so we're, we are an RIA. And what we basically do is we invest and lend capital on behalf of some of the largest public pension plans, sovereigns, and family offices, and do both debt and equity that is all collateralized by commercial real estate assets, primarily located in the middle market and throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And what does middle market mean, just to get a sense of that size of deal? It's a great question. So middle market is both size, so we say 5 to 75 million, and it's also in non-gateway markets primarily. So some, And I don't like to call them secondary markets because I don't think that term is applicable today. I think it's growth markets. Mm. So we may be in cities like Salt Lake. We might be in, in Baltimore and in Cleveland in Charlotte, and we do deals in some of the gateway cities, but we may be in, like in New York City, for, by way of example, we may not be in Manhattan proper, we may mm -hmm. be in some of the, the boroughs. 
So for us, that has been where there's been a lot of opportunity and basis and our leadership team have been investing in the middle market, you know, for more than 15 years. <laughs> and you do all property types? Yes, we do all property types. So one of the things that's unique about Basis and one of uh, what I think is is our competitive advantage is, A, you know, our team has been together for 20 years, which most people can't say. So we've invested through multiple cycles together. B, we are also focused on diversification and delivering a diversified portfolio for our investors across multifamily. We do a lot of workforce housing. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You know, some office very few uh, hotels. I'm, I'm trying to get in my mind. I don't want to, you know, we do all property types, but thankfully in this exogenous, you know, crisis, this COVID crisis, we, have, we don't have a lot of hotel exposure, but we do industrial mixed use. I'm trying to make sure I've got all the food groups in, in, in you there. You left retail out. Yeah, and retail. Good, thank you. Um, and, I, and that probably was, you know, subconscious. <laughs> you know, obviously retail has gone through a transformation with Amazon. And one of the things that I think Basis did right was we focused in the middle market and focused on drug and grocery anchored centers and community centers, which have actually fared, if you think about relatively speaking, compared to other retail concerns and challenges, those centers, when you think with COVID, food and shelter, that those centers have actually performed pretty well. Mm -hmm. And you talked about your competitive advantage. So your team been together 20 years, your diversified portfolio, was there a number three? A number three was the fact that we are delivering equity-like yields with downside protection. And so that's what I like to call our strategy, equity, uh -huh. which uh -huh. means investing up and down the capital stack, trying to find targeted positions where we can provide downside protection. And I think that that's really relevant today when you're in what is a down market, if you can get equity-like yields but have defensive positioning and downside protection, then taking equity risk may not be the way to go today. And I, I think that because it's a time for, of caution, I think a number of our investors are focusing on, you know, not so much upside, but really defensive positioning, deploying capital, but also protecting downside. Got it. And last question about your business overview, because this one matters, your minority and women-owned. Talk about that. So we're, we're a certified minority and women-owned business, which is, which is super important. And for us, it's been a way for us to be another sort of unique aspect in that we're hoping to create diversity in managers. I mean, we're an investment manager, so that's primarily what we do. We're, we're also a lender. And I, I should say that we have a Freddie Mac seller servicer license. Mm -hmm. And so we're the only African-American and woman-owned seller servicer as well. And so I think that that allows both in our partnership with Freddie Mac, as well as in our partnerships with our 17 investors, that they have diversity within their managers because diversity of thought is important. My network is probably going to be similar to the networks of some of the majority owned companies, but I also have some, you know, areas where I have access to a different network. And so I think that that's what basis brings to the table. Mm -hmm. And in that access to a different network, does your business focus differently? You talked about non-gateway markets. I like that better than secondary. So I'm going to remember that articulation. <laughs> but are you doing a higher percentage of business with minority or women-owned businesses? And does that let you get into different places with different returns and different risk profiles? Right. So commercial real estate is all about relationships <laughs> and we bring our networks wherever you, you go. So I started my career equitable. We're going to talk about that. Then went to 
a subsidiary of GM and then went to a subsidiary of the Case Depot. Mm -hmm. And obviously those networks came with me. Mm -hmm. But I also, as an African-American woman and being the first female chair of Real Estate Executive Council, I have access to some of the highest ranking African-American real estate owners, operators, Mm -hmm. property managers, executives in the country. And so they are part of my network as well. And when you have that network who can introduce you to other folks because they're connectors, Mm -hmm. then your network grows. And so I think that, yes, being an African-American woman, in in addition to that, also being a woman, I have a network of women owners. And so I'm intentional about wanting to make sure that I'm finding the best managers because my goal is to create alpha for my investors and to Mm -hmm. meet our targeted returns. And it's all about performance. I just want to be clear about that. But it's not mutually exclusive to have performance and not create diversity because to me, diversity of managers is important. So I'm very intentional about finding and identifying women and minority owned businesses. And to that end, Basis has invested about 800 million now with other minority women owned qualified mm-hmm. commercial real estate companies, both you know on the debt and equity side. And I'm really proud of that because our portfolio is doing extremely well. In fact, it's some of the best performing stuff that we have. And I feel I feel really good about that. It's not that we're going and finding lower quality um, borrowers or partners. It's not about that at all. So I think that hopefully with our intentionality in this, it's a, it's a lesson that I share with other people who are now starting to say, well, maybe this is something that we should consider doing because it also gets you into different markets. Mm-hmm. If you're investing with an African-American developer or someone who understands a market that they lived in and they really have connections. And it just makes, you know, the investment and your due diligence that much better because you have somebody who's boots on the ground who actually really understands the market. And so I think that there are missed opportunities. And I feel like as the browning of America does happen, I think that we are all going to want to be more diverse in who we do business with. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Basis has a leg up on that. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the mainstream real estate business, either debt or equity, are they less welcoming to a black or brown or woman-owned business so that you know there's less competition in that market? You have a special relationship because you can talk easily. But also, I'm thinking the doors are only half open. I don't know if that's still the case. So talk a little bit no. about that. No, I think I think it's a great question. And, you know, I love dangerous questions, by the way, Max. Okay, we'll keep going there. So so I I think that and honestly, I've had to think about how I position basis and our team to deal with that very question. And so I think that people see risk with minority owned platforms. I think they see operating risk. And I get it. I get it. You want to make sure that you're deploying your capital or investing with people that you think are going to return your capital and, and, and deliver that return. So I understand. So I do think that there is a pressure on women and minority-owned businesses to try to de-risk ourselves. And the way that I've done it and the way I think I've advised others is to just build your track record, to Mm -hmm. build your track record, to try to show that you can deploy capital successfully, that you can round trip and realize investments. And that's one way to combat the feeling that you don't have the operational prowess and institutional quality process to partner with a company like that. But not everybody can do that. And so it requires people giving opportunities and access to opportunity and really trying to uh, check their own thought process about how they're viewing 
an African-American or diverse-owned manager, real estate investment manager or woman, mm-hmm. versus how they would view some you know, majority or a white male rolling out of one of the investment banks in real estate that decided to hang a shingle. And I do think that that's called unconscious bias. And so it's here and we're dealing with it. And I do think that it's conversations like these, it's shining a light on it. And data says it all. Out of the 70 trillion that's globally under the AUM for asset investment managers, 1.3% is with African-American and minority um, managers. So it goes to show you that that's, it's across this barrier, access to capital is mm-hmm. global. And so I do think that as we walk through this, this journey of hopefully of systemic change, that it's an area that we should all focus on and try to break down barriers. Absolutely. So let's talk about the barrier thing. Let's stop real estate for a minute or talk about the barriers in real estate and maybe continue our conversation from a couple of months ago and continue that conversation from three months later, national outcry. Everyone's thinking about it every second. I'm now thinking about it every other second, which is still a ton, (laughs) right? And I think we all are. But how do you see the national attention to this moving? We have vice president candidate, so kind of cool. And the news keeps coming. So so talk about that. I'm so appreciative of your honesty, because I do think that people are thinking about it every other second now. And I think it's up to people like us to continue to talk about it. I mean, and honestly, there's so many distractions. There's so much going on and we don't have to get into it all. But I'll, I'll just say today, one of um, you know my dear friends sent me a picture from in the Oakland area. Mm-hmm. And it's like Armageddon with the sky. It's such a scary thing. We have so much going on. So you think about, you know, we were talking about climate change and, and just and all that stuff. And then you have the tragic, what I call murders and lynchings still happening. You know, we have Jacob Blake, somebody who was shot in the back seven times. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming, Matt. It's overwhelming to me. And then we have, you know, a lot of stuff going on in the political arena. So, and then the volatility in the stock market and still, the you know, the pandemic, like literally. And then, so I do understand that people are distracted, but I think that the conversations are still happening and I'm still cautiously optimistic. This is what I said to you three months ago that I'm not sure if this is a moment or a movement. And I think I've, there's been a new word that I, I've heard tossed around, which is, is this a reckoning? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I do know that I'm continuing to have conversations with many senior leaders in the real estate industry mm-hmm. uh, about board diversity. I'm continuing to have conversations with respect to pipeline. I'm continuing to have people reach out to me, either through my role at Reese or through my role at, at CEO Basis about diversity, just strategies. And so I do think that people are serious about the understanding that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know that the gas is on with changing it the way it might've been when we were all up in arms together. But I think, you know, the peaceful protests keep people focused on it. I think that protesting peacefully is not rioting. And I think we need to just call it out and say it. Big difference, yep. And big difference. And I think sometimes people put them together. And I've had to actually talk to people about saying, you know, that that's don't confuse them and don't lose sight of the mission. Mm -hmm. And that peaceful protesting is an American right. And that is the way you should go about, you know, saying that you stand against something. So I do think that people are still focused on it. 
But I, I wish I could see change come more quickly. It's just that I, I know that it's going to take time. And I think that many African-American leaders that I've spoken to and spoken with are still very focused. And it's up to us to stay vigilant and focused on it. And it's up to our affiliates like you and other people who I know really care about making and affecting change to keep the pressure on. And when we, and we have to help hold each other up when we, and hold each other accountable. There's that word accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I come back to this every other minute thing that we talked about, because I don't want it to be the subject. It, it is in right. my household for different reasons, but right, with, right. what I want it to be is a consistent one quarter of the issues that we deal with, because I want to deal with climate change equally. I want yes. to deal with politics, you know, all these things equally at the same time, because otherwise we'll get fatigue on the issue and it will then disappear as so many crises in the past have happened. So the question is, how do you do a long-term 10-year, okay, we're going to move from here all the way to there over that 10-year period of time. I want it today, but it's not going to happen. And then you don't lose sight of it in a more systemic fashion, I think. Right. No, I agree. I totally think that systemic change comes about with concrete strategies, with things that you can track and measure. And I feel like I always talked you know, with you um, and others about my five points, and I just will say them quickly. Sure. Focusing on having a diversity business plan, which is a plan is not a one-year plan. It can be a five-year plan. It can be a 10-year plan. So having a diversity business plan speaks to your point about keeping Mm -hmm. it in front of you, having your concrete strategies and ways to hold people accountable through compensation, focusing on the diversity ecosystem, which is the broader mission of pipeline from high school through the boardroom, focusing on access to capital. We just talked about that and credit which are really critical for the entrepreneur. So the the ecosystem can't just be about hiring. It has to be about creating wealth, which we talked about. Access to minority spend. Who are you doing business with? Understand that. Who are your vendors? And then finally, what we're doing here, partnership, making sure that we are holding each other accountable to keep the focus on you know, the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. I'll add something to that. And this may have been in, in your points, but I'm not sure, is the work that we do in real estate really matters. And the way that we do our work, particularly in workforce housing, but we have food deserts, right? right. And, and we have industrial in put in the wrong neighborhoods so people have lung cancer. Our industry does, af- and the built environment, greatly affects racial equity. Yes. And so therefore, the way we do it could be better with those goals in mind as well. No, I think I think that's an excellent point. And we did talk about that the last time I think we, we spoke. I mean, real estate is a wealth creating industry. And if you we talked about the net worth of an African American family based on the Fed's data is 17,000 versus a white family at 171,000. And the primary difference in the balance sheet is real estate. So let's just start there. But then you have to say that real estate has this amazing opportunity to really figure out how to help create wealth and to make sure that there's a fair distribution, fairer distribution of wealth. And so when I think about development in communities, I always think about the three E's, which are education, employment, and equity. And a lot of times when we come to neighborhoods, we don't figure that, that into the equation and into our returns. And there's a multiplier effect. When you can hire people of color, when you can actually introduce the local businesses to real estate opportunities, when you can educate the youth 
And then if I, if I wanted to add another fourth E, it would be environment. Making sure that you care about the environment, like that I know that we're both passionate about. And so, and so I do think that real estate has this unique as a tangible asset class to really change the landscape, to build communities that thrive, that have the right retail, that have businesses that are local, but also have you know, other access to things. You know, like when I grew up in Queens, South Jamaica, Queens, there was a liquor store on every corner, a check cash in place, all the wrong food to eat. I mean, my God, like mm-hmm. think about the plan in development. And when you have communities where you have great supporting retail to uh, or properties, commercial properties to your home, first of all, your home values go up, you have property taxes and you get good school systems mm-hmm. and the children have opportunities. And so all of this is in the power of, of our industry. So I think it's an opportunity to rethink, you know, how we go to communities. And I guess I'm just saying invest in communities of color in, in a way that is more inclusive. I think that matters. And that so that's the goal for the real estate industry. Let's diversify our people, give opportunities to our people, diversify how we invest and with whom, but then also where we invest and what we do there. It makes a huge, huge difference. And some of the work we've done in the past has disinvested from those places, which exactly right. is as bad as not doing it the right way. So exactly right. Exactly right. So let's change the subject because you got us there. Talked about growing up at Queens. So I want to hear the Tammy story and I'm curious how you got to this place. Well, the Tammy story, I like telling it. It's the one story I know wrong. I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, and I'm from a family of eight, which includes five siblings, so six kids and and two parents. I grew up in a two-bedroom apartment with those eight people, so we got to know each other really well. And the one thing that I I think was so important about how I grew up was I grew up with, this is going to sound a little bit hokey, but I grew up with a lot of love. My parents were very focused on us getting an education. My parents did not have a college education. My mom had a high school degree. My dad only had an eighth grade education. And I remember how he was often embarrassed by that. And I remember when I realized like there was a certain point in math, you know how like at at some point you can't help your kids anymore in math. And I got to that point, I remember just watching him feel really you know, embarrassed about that. But the one thing that my dad was brilliant at was he was a jazz musician and he played with Duke Ellington and Count Basie. And he, if you know the, the song, Stand By Me, Benny King, the mm-hmm. bass line, my dad, he was a studio he's musician. bass player? Yes, he's a bass player and, and, and the best bass player in the whole world, I'm, I'm gonna sure. tell you. And so if you're a musician and you, you know, you know, you've heard of my dad and although jazz, you know, sort of had a this in the United States when I came up, we really, you know, just the, the money was was not there. So we we were, and my parents didn't, you know, he didn't, my dad didn't get paid for the recordings in the studios. I wish I could have helped him now. There's a whole movie about that because I, with my financial mind, I would have been able to help. So my parents never owned a home. They never owned real estate. They've rented an apartment for 40 years. I mean, well, every time I think about it, I have to like take a deep breath. With six kids in the bedroom. Yes. And they slept in the living room. I mean, this is a true story. And so they just devoted everything to us. I mean, six kids is very expensive to us trying to get an education. So I'm the first generation, actually the first woman in my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I owe that to my parents always focusing on education. And, and it's interesting because there is a relationship in my view between math and music. And although Huge. I might not have been, I can tell you the other part of the Tammy story was I thought I was, was going to become a singer. 
not a real estate owner and entrepreneur. And my dad was kind enough to tell me, I think you should stick with math. So I do karaoke now. But anyway. Hey, so talking we- about that just for one second, today or yesterday, Sonny Rollins' 90th birthday. Oh, wow. Just uh, And I just yeah. listened to his story growing up in Harlem because I heard, listened to an interview with him and yeah. how he yep. grew in and did it and all that stuff. So That's exactly right. So, you know, from there, again, focused on education, did really well in school, very strong in math got to Cornell University and majored in economics because I really didn't know what to major in. And how I got to Cornell University was my brother went to Cornell University. And in my house, I just followed him. I literally just followed him. And you know, to have two kids from that neighborhood go to Cornell was probably a really big deal. I don't think I knew that. How many and of the six went to college? All of us now. And not all of us went at the same time. Some worked for a while and then went back. And a few of us have graduate degrees as well. So my, you know, my brother's a CPA. I have one of my brothers is a lawyer. My sisters are nurses. My one sister's a computer programmer. So, you know, really, I think, and we're all good people with character and good ethics. And so I I think my parents, you know, I'm thankful to them. I think they did a great job. And all of my siblings and I are very close, you know, to this day. My dad's no longer with us, but we learned a lot from him. And he taught me about passion and entrepreneurship, because when you're a jazz musician, you basically eat what you kill, just like I do. And I watched him try to, to figure out and navigate that, but also to be passionate. When you love what you're doing, it changes the whole world. And so I love what I do. And so I think I got that from my dad and being able to talk to people. When you're a jazz musician, you have to charm everybody. And so I think that you know a lot of, I, I always feel so happy when people say that I remind them of him because being able to just speak freely, being able to be respectful and welcoming. And I think my dad used music as a language to reach people. And I try to, you know, while while I don't have that language, I try to use the gifts that I have to reach people. It's interesting. I I keep sticking with your comment from before that your dad was embarrassed. His math wasn't very good with an eighth grade education, but having raised kids who've accomplished all the things you just described and being a, a working jazz musician, there's a whole lot of intelligence. Oh, my God. And th- think about jazz and how complex it is and the patterns and, and the way you have to think. I believe that as an entrepreneur, I have had to think just like that. And so I'm so grateful to him. I love my mom and she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give her you know, any a shout out, too. But I do think that I love that you said that because I do think that, that there's such brilliance and a way to think that is just, it's not linear. With jazz, you have to just be able to interpret. And that's something that I'm, I'm really proud of. Yeah. Okay. So let's keep going. So talk about after Cornell and how did you find your way to real estate? Um, so Cornell majored in economics, which gave me sort of a platform of, mm-hmm. you know, I can do financial services. And I interviewed with a company called Equitable Life mm-hmm. that had a number of different platforms. At that time, it was the Equitable Enterprise and they had an investment bank and they had the life company, and they had this subsidiary called Equitable Real Estate. And I was in this training program because I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. And one of the rotations that was offered to me was this a rotation in, in real estate. And at Cornell, I had taken one class in the hotel school because I was in the arts school, um, which was like a real estate hotel finance class as an elective. And I kind of liked it, but you know, so when I heard about the real estate thing, that was sort of my, you know, connection to to real estate. 
Because remember, I told you my parents never owned a home, so I had no idea about mortgages. I had, didn't know anybody in the real estate industry. I had not even heard of commercial real estate. The closest thing I had heard of was the hotel class. But I knew something about cash flows, and I remember doing a little model and, and all that. So when I went and did my rotation in Atlanta, Georgia, with Equitable Real Estate Subsidiary, I was sold. I loved it. I liked the fact that it was sort of real estate for me was a little bit like economics, but it was more micro with supply and demand in property types. And I love the fact that it was tangible because I'm a very visual person. I liked that it was unique. And so I stepped out of the program and stayed in Atlanta. And what year was this? This was, now you're going to have to make, stretch me on years, but this was in the 80s. Okay. Yeah, Equitable was the, one of the three, four giants in the business at that time. You know, at that point, they were one of the largest real estate investment management platforms mm-hmm. that managed capital for a bunch of different public pension plans. And it's interesting how life has come full circle for me mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm doing exactly what Equitable did for mm-hmm. some of the same public pension plans. Mm-hmm. So talk about your wending your way through this. Did you work more on the equity side, the debt side, and, and then you kind of went into debt? So. I did both. I mean, I went, I was on the equity side when I worked at Equitable Real Estate and we were deploying capital on behalf of the general account. And I worked on IBM's account. I worked a little bit on New York Common and CalPERS and CalSTRS, all in equity transactions. And then eventually went over to the debt side right before I left Equitable because we were doing workouts at that point based on the mm-hmm. cycle. And then went to GM, a subsidiary of GM called GMAC Commercial Mortgage for one other reason. I actually wanted to come back to up north and which is as evidenced by me making the move to GM. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it all worked out and that's when I moved to the debt side. And don't ask me years because I don't remember years, but I went to GM and got, you know, was deploying capital on behalf of, of the pension plan into some of the debt strategies that we're doing today at Basis. And then, you know, from there, I uh, had held some senior level positions, had an opportunity to help build CW Capital, Capital's Capital Markets Lending Platform under the umbrella of the Case Depot, another big public pension plan. CW Capital was the U.S. debt platform owned by the Case Depot, again, you know, deploying the pension funds capital in into various debt strategies. And when I was there, I, I was brought on to build the Capital Markets Lending Platform. And it was a great opportunity because I built the platform along with the, the leadership team from myself to 80 people, we deployed um, capital to the tune of six billion. We closed 500 transactions, and it was, you know, it was very successful. And so that was great experience for me <laughs> prior to going out and launching my own platform. Because to be able to build a division, and I'll, I'll just say, in summary, with my career, you know, starting because we, you know, kind of was a little choppy here, but you know, started on the equity side, <laughs> went to the debt side, <laughs> and each. Position prepared me for the next position. So at GMAC Commercial Mortgage, I led a group, you know, a small department, and then I went to CW Capital and ran a platform with a PL and you know reported into to the CEO. And so that was mm-hmm. that was awesome experience to be able to kind of build upon each thing. When you were at CW Capital and you built Capital Markets, was that still with Pension Fund Capital, or were you then doing like CMBS? kind of strategies, capital market strategies? We were doing both. We were deploying capital that was given to us by the Case Depot. And then we were also, I launched the CMBS platform, which is clearly using 
the capital of, you know, you're selling, you're initially closing deals with your capital and, and some leverage, but then you're selling investments. But that wasn't the only strategy that we had. Uh-huh. And talk about that point in time. So talk about your winding your way through your career and growing, as you just described it, as a young black woman, where you're one of the like three or four. So there's, there's not a lot of you there then. Not a lot of yeah. women in the first place. So No, I mean, it was definitely difficult. I mean, I will tell you that. And I think a lot of the guys know that it's hard to get into the the good old boy network to necessarily have the same access mm-hmm. just because you may not even have the same things in common. And so in the real estate industry, I think for me, both as a woman and an African-American woman, it was hard to necessarily make the connections. But I'm of a very, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not a, a wallflower. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to make connections with you. I'm going to try to find the commonality with you. And if it doesn't work, I'm okay with that. I'll I'll move on. And I think that being in the industry for a woman is not for the faint of heart. You have to be okay with rejection. You have to know that, you know, you may not always be welcome. And being, you know, an African-American woman is the, like I just said, the double whammy. And I think African-American men, the same thing. I, I, I do think that it's not, you know, the industry itself, we've talked about this, is very much a closed network and is, is a legacy industry. And so it's hard to break into that. That said, I don't think anybody can claim their own career success without having angels and people along the way that have helped them. And I was fortunate and blessed to be able to find people that actually saw my talent, that mm-hmm. saw my investment acumen, that saw my ability to, to, you know, to work hard. And those people, a lot of them were white men. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to think that they were enlightened. I'd like to think that maybe they had daughters or moms, that, that sisters, that they actually wanted to empower and to be fair to. And so I do believe that without some of those people, like um, my CEO, Michael Berman, who you know is an amazing guy, he really, when I came on board at CW Capital, again, the subsidiary of the case, he said, Tammy, you're a great deal person. And he helped me learn to be, you know, to run a company. And those are very different things. And to run a company means you're hiring, you're building infrastructure, you're building a process. You're not just doing deals. And so I think that many people realize, you know, don't understand the transition that you have to make Mm -hmm. to to go from being in big institutions, which by the way, I'm very grateful that I I was institutionally trained. I got to learn on somebody else's P&L and I got to continue to think about you know, managing people first and then managing, you know, a budget. And then, ma- and, and so as you keep moving through, you realize that, you know, when I came and started my own business at Basis, I was like, where are all the people? I don't have anybody to do anything. It was just me. And so then you start to, to build. I took the approach of a scalable core team and kind of built the platform, you know, step by step, brick by brick. Obviously, I had a, a partner um, that I brought in, you know, right away who gave me GP capital and LP capital. Is this, a, this is at Basis. This is a basis. Yeah, let's go back for a sec. So I'm curious about a couple things, and then I want to talk about the founding of Basis. It's funny. I'm like pretending like I'm interviewing you as a headhunter here, and I'm not. But you are. (laughs) Hopefully, this is interesting. (laughs) Well, one Michael Berman's an old friend, so great guy, and it's having mentors really matters. What's the balance as you grew through your career between investment acumen, technical skills, and people skills? You've talked most of the podcast about people skills networking, being fearless, forming relationships, but then the investment side, that's a given, you just have to have that. 
But then developing that people skills, I think at the end of the day, becomes the thing that, that transforms you to that next level, the next level. Right. And I think, I think it depends on what you want to do. You're absolutely right. For me to become a middle manager and to start to become a leader within a company, whatever mm -hmm. that means, you know, near the C-suite. And I, I said this to you before, but I never saw myself as a CEO of a majority company. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I, I didn't think that it wasn't that I didn't think I had the talent, but I didn't see the access. So for me, I've always wanted to do stuff on my own. And if you, you know, ever talk to Michael Berman or any of my other, you know, bosses, they will tell you that I like to do things my way and, you know, that it's probably didn't surprise them that I was going to, you know, eventually become an entrepreneur. And I've always had that spirit. But I also thought in my mind that if I want to lead, if I want to be able to be the change I want to see, it's not going to likely happen at a majority company. And that's a very sad thing to really think about. And it's something that I hope will change for people that come behind me, because it is hard when you can't see yourself in a role. And at the end of the day, if you want to be in a leadership role, you have to be able to have the blend of skills. And I always tell people that I mentor, it's like the ability to be 50,000 feet mm -hmm. as a manager, mm -hmm. but also to drill down when you need to. And that's the investment acumen. And I, you know, today I was on the phone, uh, actually Zoom call with my team on a deal. And, you know, I can drill down when you've done the job, it's easy to, to guide the job. And so we talked about why this particular deal had some risks and mm -hmm. I challenged them on, well, what about this? What about rollover? What about the pandemic? What's the, you know, not just occupancy, but what's going on in this particular market? Are the people in the office? What is this owner doing, you know, with respect to making sure that people are safe? And so you start going through all of that and then I kick into my investment side. And so I think when I'm speaking to investors, I think that they like the fact that they can ask me a question about a deal and I'm not looking to like my CIO. I'm actually going to say, well, this is my opinion on the deal because I've touched, mm -hmm. I don't know, billions of dollars across every property type from being exposed to the debt and equity side of the business. And I think that it just strengthens my ability to lead. Absolutely true. When did you, in your career, real estate is such a transactional business. So was there a point, and maybe this comes from getting started in an in institution, but was there a point where success became not more deals or the next deal or the next deal being easier to get and success became, I'm a leader, I'm going to build something. Is there two diff totally different things? No, totally different. And so I love both. And I, I'm a deal junkie, but I also love to build and transform. And so for me, I could never just be at a company and just doing deals and mm -hmm. getting the bigger and the bigger and the bigger, which there was a pathway like that right. for me. And I actually didn't want it. I wanted to run the company, right? I wanted to, because I saw ways that I would do something different. And in what you do when you are exposed to all these different leadership styles with amazing institutions is you you see things that are done really well and you want to emulate them. But you also see things that are not as efficient and you want to try to change them as well. And so I was drawn to that. I was drawn to to building, you know, a platform. And when I went out on my own, I was able to bring that together. So I do think that there are different skill sets. Some people have both, which I think creates a different level of success. And I think that some people, and it's not that any one path is bad or good, it's just that they're different. And I think that, you know, when I mentor people, I always say that you have to just know yourself and know what you are passionate about. And so I get very excited about building 
you know, different platforms. And if you think of, of look at basis, we have seven different ventures and they were all built in the same way, which is, you know, start with a smaller team, then build out around it. Just building my Freddie Mac business, you know, has been awesome. Mm -hmm. Building that and hiring the whole team and getting the process and building my funds business and trying to expand that. And we're, we're in the process of doing that. So I have a lot of, I get a lot of personal satisfaction and enjoyment in leading those charges. It's wonderful. It's interesting. When I started my firm, it's funny because search is a transactional business, kind of, or very much so. And I wanted to do it my own way, just like you said. I was annoying to other people because I thought I had a more focused approach or something. But I wanted to do it my way by myself. I didn't care about building something, actually, at first. And then after I did it enough myself with a small team, then I realized, whoa, I'm building something. My way is building something. And I found it interesting. Right. So. It was so just true. fascinating how, because I backed into it. I never had that ambition or thought about it. God bless you that you did, and you got there. So when you founded Basis, was it also an inflection point for CW? Did you find it around the GFC time, or how did it come together, and did you take your team? Yeah, so great question. So the GFC, as we all, seems like it was so long ago, but, it, you know, what now, 11 years ago, was a time where things stopped, right, for the mm -hmm. most part. And so thankfully, because I, and I value my time at CW and with, and with them, and the case was very supportive at that time, I didn't lose my job. I was literally on the sidelines because at that point, if you can recall, everybody thought that it was going to come back soon, that the market would, markets would open up and that we'd be back um, in business. And so I was basically on the sidelines and, you know, I have a type A personality. So I was just probably the first time that I ever was able to read a book for enjoyment. And I was reading The Alchemist. And I'll never forget that Paolo Coelho is the author. It's one of my favorite books. And it was one of the quotes went something to the effect of the only sure way to not achieve your dream is fear of failure. And I may have messed it up a little bit, but that's the essential quote. <laughs> and I'll never forget that I was reading that book. And I said to myself, you know what? I am scared. I'm sitting here and I'm you know, hoping that the business is going to come back and, and what else am I doing? And I, I just started, I started getting excited. And I said, if not now, when am I going to do this? I had a little bit of money saved. I decided to write a business plan. I got down to number 10 on my list of high net worth family offices, because as the leader of the platform, I had access to all of these, you know, major family offices. I had done business with them. I sat across from them. I negotiated with them. And so I was able to find my GP sponsor because I felt like 100% of zero was going to be zero. So I brought in a partner. And then I also got $100 million in LP capital in the middle of the great financial crisis. And my team at CW, first of all, Michael Berman was so supportive. He was scared. He said, I think you're a little bit crazy, but if this is what you want to do, you know, you have my support. And, and he continued to be my mentor and my advisor. And then it, as it relate, related to my team, at that point, we had laid off, CW Capital laid off a ton of people. So it was actually amazing to go back and get some of my team and rehire them at basis. And it took time. I didn't hire a million people, but that's why we've been, you know, many of us have been together for 20 years because we worked at both GM, at GMAC, as well as CW and, you know, subsidiary of the case. That was really, um, was great. So I did take my team, not from CW, but right. they were already. Some of the most successful businesses come from teams reforming 
out in yes. the ether, right? They come back together because they should be, and they know each other, and you could finish each other's sentences. And Absolutely. and you were the natural leader. And so then what was the vision when you started the business? Not seven disciplines, but it became seven disciplines over time. So talk just a bit about the growth of the business and where you've gotten to today and what you're most proud of. Yeah, so the initial strategy was to follow the money. That debt was going to come back first, very simple. And we thought we were going to be buying distressed debt. And then what happened was we wound up buying dislocated bonds initially and then doing some distressed debt, but not as much as, as we, we, we wanted to do. Our first year was extremely profitable. We were super excited. So we started off deploying capital. And then every year, basically, we raised capital by strategy. So we began expanding into preferred equity and mes debt and bridge debt. And then we launched the funds platform where you know we were able to raise capital with deploying you know, capital for almost, I guess it's now 17 investors, as I mentioned before, pub, some of the largest public pension plans in the country, sovereigns and family offices. Are they separate accounts or commingled? How does that work? It, we have both. Now we have a commingled fund, but, but historically we had a number of separate accounts and I call them funds of one and joint ventures. And so it was a really thoughtful approach in, in going back to what I said in the beginning of the podcast, which was build your track record. So we, I raised capital by strategy. I had some institutional capital and partnerships with, with large institutions that were more separate account oriented, but we had a proven track record in each of the strategies that we planned on putting into the fund. And so when I went to raise capital for the fund, it was not a track record at CW Capital or at GMAC. It was a basis track record. And so that was mm -hmm. the critical difference. And, and both those separate accounts and the fund is are equity or preferred what, what mes or it's all diversified so the, the fund is a diversified that's one of the the positives it does both commercial real estate like i said equity we do commercial real estate debt and and equity structured equity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and now let's kind of bring the conversation back to where we started and think a little bit about investing in neighborhoods investing in ways that bring social equity so let's kind of talk about that and is that in everything you do in the back of your mind? Is that a quarter of your business? Kind of talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's we don't have a social impact fund, so it's not it's not everything we do, mm -hmm. but it's certainly a natural product of being in the network of basis. It's natural because I am accessing a niche group of owners and borrowers because of being an African American woman and having the relationships that I have. So it's intentional because I want to make sure that we are inclusive in looking for opportunities. So I would say that it's right now, I think of, in my fund, it's a, I think we are close to 30% of our investments are with women and minority owned businesses. So that mm -hmm. just gives you some sense of that. Mm -hmm. And so it's not something where we're saying, you know, every one of our deals is going to be with a woman and minority. I mean, I don't, cause I'm very focused on making sure that we're getting the best returns that we can. And so we want to make sure that we're, looking across an array of opportunities. So I don't want to you know, mislead and say mm -hmm. that, but I do think that we're actually tracking it. We're actually making sure that we're looking for women and minority owned borrowers with pipelines. I also told you that in our prior conversation that 78% of my team is women and minorities. And we also make sure that we track who we do business with and 50% of our vendors are women and minority owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And so that's intentional. Mm -hmm. so, so I would say that it's definitely it's part of our DNA. It's, it's how we think. 
I feel like what we're doing is finding alpha by finding some of the best in class managers. And because of our network, many of them happen to be diverse and women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And talk about in your team and how people, I'm just curious about this, how, how people who originate business, so it's a big yes. part of this, do they originate everything across the board or does everyone specialize in the seven different disciplines that you do? We basically have the funds platform, which is the registered investment advisor that works on the equity stuff. And that's a group of folks. And then we have our lending platform, which is primarily our seller servicer, Freddie Mac platform. And also we do some CMBS, you know, we, we look at, we also buy B pieces. And so that's a different team as well. So we really, you know, we have, when I think about our platform, I think about the funds investment management platform. I think about the CMBS business, which as you know, right now is really not as robust. Mm -hmm. And then our agency platform. And so we have different teams that focus in those areas. Mm -hmm. And as you think about your business, and we'll move on to the last subjects in a few minutes, but as you think about your business and you think about your teams, you've talked about it a lot. You've talked about leadership. What makes the team ride well together? What holds this focus and culture from your standpoint? Well, I think that what I love about our team is that we're all extremely hardworking. I think we're all really dedicated to the mission. And I think everybody feels really good about Basis's approach, which again is is very inclusive. And so I've had some of my team members say to me, I've never worked at a place that's this diverse and they love it. I think they really like that. A lot of our team has both debt and equity experience, which I think really makes us very unique when we're not just a lending platform. We are actually looking at every one of our investments as if we were going to own them. So that's something that I think brings us together. I talked about, you know, the, the senior leadership team has been together for 20 years. That means that we know each other really well. As you said, we can finish each other's sentences. We've been through multiple cycles together. There's, there's a level of comfort Uh, camaraderie and respect. I think there's a lot of respect and, you know, you have to love where you, where you work and who you're working with because you're spending so much time with each other. And so I'm really proud of my team. I mean, I feel like we have one of the best teams out there and I just feel like everyone is pulling in the same direction because they're excited about our growth and excited about being the only African-American woman owned business. And they feel like they're a part of changing history, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's a wonderful thing when when the team members see every transaction is building something versus every transaction is a transaction. There's lots of different things that pull people together. Last question on this: What's next for your business? You have seven business lines. If you keep going, is is there more? What happens? Yeah. So we are hopefully, and I'm I'm not you know I'll let you know when I can actually be really clear about this. But the direction of the business will be to launch an equity platform in the middle market, which is to create you know, the first African-American and female-owned diversified commercial real estate platform that really has the full array because we've done more debt than equity and now we're gonna go in, in, into the direction. So basically reversing my career full circle, which will create you know, a platform that is able to truly invest across the capital stack. And so that's hopefully on the horizon at some point. The natural progression is to begin to do pure equity, but letting our investors see that we're directionally doing it now. And then there's a whole way to, you know, to figure out how to how to launch that business. And 
that's what excites me is, is building that. So <laughs> that will happen. <laughs> so you also have leadership positions within the industry. So we talked about the Real Estate Executive Council. Let's keep talking about that. I think you're now on the board of Mac Cali, which has some transitions going on. I am, and I'm proud to say that um, I'm the lead independent director for Matt Cali, and it's a great position to be in when board service. There's a whole array of opportunities that open up, and mm-hmm. I'd like to see more African Americans given the opportunity to be given opportunities in in board leadership. But I I love the role. It's definitely I think it's great for a CEO that's a current CEO. In addition to having some folks that may be retired to cross-pollinate. It's mm-hmm. great because it helps me grow and learn and see a different business and then also add value. And the primary focus as an independent director, as you know, is to create value for our shareholders. But we also look at this as value for our stakeholders. And so I'm, I'm very excited that I am also the chair of their first ESG committee, which is Good. Environmental Governance. Mm-hmm. And it really proves that we need to make sure that we have diversity in the boardroom because change starts at the top. And so this has been, it's been great. It's, um, you know, recent appointment. And um, I was told that we, that Matt Cowley has the first, um, let me make sure I can get this right. The first interim CEO, who's Marianne Gilmartin. Prior guest on the podcast. So we need to have her back. You have her back, chair of the board and lead independent director for REIT that are all women. And so we are killing it. We're having a great time. It's it's great, and we and we're taking our responsibility very seriously. Uh-huh. And the board is fantastic. So so that's been great. I do hope that that seeing me be a lead independent director and 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 seeing me get you know the opportunity to be in the boardroom and create value for our shareholders is inspiring to other African Americans who are looking for um, for board service. I think not just that. Interesting thing about board service also is that it forces you, it has to help you in your business because it forces you to think up here. If in your business, you swoop from 10,000 feet to a hundred feet as a board member, you swoop from 50,000 feet, but you never go below 5,000 feet or something like that. No, it's so, so true. And I think it definitely, um, hones your skills. And, you know, I've also had the opportunity to be on the audit committee and, um, you know, qualified financial expert and, and just it just you know stretches your your skill set and makes you better, I think, in your own company if you're <laughs> continuing to be in an operating platform, but it actually you know makes you a better board member. It's very hard to get your first board for anyone, but particularly for you know people of color. So it's you know I'm hoping this is my second public board and I'm I'm hoping that I'm showing people that there is a pathway. And so anyone who is looking for board service definitely through re, a real estate executive council, we are creating a pipeline of, for African-Americans. So this is my little commercial for that. That's wonderful. Any other words before we wrap up on the Real Estate Executive Council at this moment and this opportunity? So thank you for asking that. I mean, at Real Estate Executive Council, or affectionately called Reese, we are really looking to try to be great partners in helping to um, change the face of real estate. So we're hoping that corporations who can't figure it out on their own or other trade organizations who want to help to change the face of real estate and to help um, improve diversity will realize that that we need partnership to do that. And so Reese can be a, a great diversity partner. And we're excited because we're focused on the whole ecosystem. And I think it's important that we all think about not just hiring, but we also think about wealth creation. And we also think about investing in the communities the right way. And I feel like those three things 
there's and find out what your place is in that. You might not be able to do everything, but find out what your place is and and in that in some of those areas and reach out, you know, to folks like Reese, trade organizations like Reese that can help. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this through the podcast, the concept of ally. And I'm the white guy in the room here. And we've been talking about this before. And it's so, and most of our audience would fit that bill. Although I think we have really diverse audience because a lot of young people getting into the business. But the industry is still populated with allies, not black and brown people. But it's, we're in this together. Without the work of the allies, the work doesn't exist. And podcasts like this will bring us in, in a positive way. But any thoughts? No, I, I think that we need you, allies, as part of the solution. And that's why I'm encouraging the outreach. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it will continue and that we can turn the outreach and the, and the positive stance, you know, taking stands against, you know, systemic racism into real action. And we're beginning to see that. Um, I was excited today because through some of the outreach, we actually placed someone on a board that is still confidential, but that just warms my heart because it was a person that saw me on actually your podcast, I'm going to tell you, who reached out to me and then I I identified a pipeline and there's an individual that's being, has been placed on a board. And that, that happens two or three months, board positions can take much longer than that. So, you know, you you have to make change one person at a time. And Mm -hmm. so, and now we need to keep measuring that. So to the allies, please help us because we, we are in this together and we need you as the majority folks in the industry to help us figure out how to create change. <laughs> Hopefully a win, 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 not a zero sum game. That's a, that's a deeper question. We'll go there next time. Absolutely. Um, last question on leading voices is always your advice to a young person getting into the real estate business. In this case, it might be a young black and brown person, maybe even a woman considering yes. getting into this strange place. Right. Well, I, you know, I always say, and this is sort of general advice, is that you always have to be your authentic self. And I believe that's so important. I think that you need to, you know, focus on what it is that, that you like. And in the real estate industry, try a bunch of things. I think for women in particular, sometimes we get pigeonholed outside of the transaction side of the business. If you feel like you want to be in the transaction side of the business, don't go do support. Not that there's anything wrong with you know, accounting and, and other areas, but sometimes, you know, that's where we seem to get positioned and then it's hard to get back. And so I say, you know, make sure that, you know, to, to those of you who are looking to understand the business, try a bunch of different areas. Always have a view because, you know, it's your, it's your opinion. And in real estate, the good news is a lot of us are making projections about things. And as long mm-hmm. as you can support your view, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. Somebody can disagree with you. Be okay with rejection. We talked about that mentorship and sponsorship is really important. Be comfortable with taking risk if you're going to be in this business mm-hmm. and listen well. Make sure that you listen to people and, and perfect that skill. It's a really hard skill because people think that they have to get out there and therefore they think they have to talk. Sometimes the cha- most challenging thing for me in my career, I think, was listening mm-hmm. because I like to talk. You're good. We always <laughs> like to talk. But I had to learn to listen and it's, it's such a great skill because you can just, when you listen to other people, you learn so much. Hey, Tammy, I, I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast a second time. This is a wonderful conversation. Your story is incredible and will be inspirational and this will matter a lot. So really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. 
I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.